Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Alok Tai, who is founder and CEO at Vibe Bio. Before we get into today's episode, I'm going to try something new. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory to my guest. And uh, I suppose different from what I normally do, rather than kind of give you a, a taste for what's coming up in today's episode, I'm going to experiment with talking about my takeaways at the back end of the interview today. So rather than switch off your podcast when the guest disappears, I ask that you hold on and gather some of my thoughts, which in my mind will hopefully help you take away some of those key learnings and action points to help you get on with your day. So who is Alok? Well, Alok has spent over 15 years as a scientist and 12 years as a serial entrepreneur. After completing a postdoctoral work at Harvard University with George Whitesides, Alok started two pharma SaaS companies, Prescouter and TetraScience, which employ several hundred people combined and have more than 400 customers. He also launched and led the life sciences division of Ignite, a cloud content governance company based in California, and grew the business to a 60-person team and eight-figure run rate. He founded Vibe Bio after his daughter was hospitalized at birth, and he learned firsthand that the biggest obstacle to developing treatments isn't finding potential therapies, it's funding them. Vibe Bio is helping patients in similar situations overcome that obstacle by scaling the development of treatments for rare disorders sustainably for the first time. He holds a BS from Cornell and a PhD from Northwestern, both in materials, science and engineering. And just a bit of backstory for Alok. So when I first moved to the US, I was connected to Alok by a former client and friend of mine, Claire Madden-Smith, who said, you've got to meet this guy. And I distinctly remember sitting with Alok having a coffee in Cambridge near Kendall Square. And I was so, so impressed by him. In fact, I remember telling my wife that day, I was like, I've met the guy who is uh, effectively the grown-up version of who I want to be. <laughs> and I think he even might be a bit younger than me, which is which is a shame from my perspective. Nevertheless, I, I found his story quite inspiring. I love the way he goes about his business and uh, what's particularly interesting about today's interview, I suppose, is, as I mentioned in his biog, the path that led to his new business from, a, I suppose, a personal situation um, is a really great one and is leading him to create some amazing work. So enjoy today's episode. Hey, Alok, welcome back to Molecule to Market. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be uh, asked to be a guest on the show again. Thank you. Well, you are you are one of the few that has is back to doing a, an encore, if you like, on Molecule to Market. But I'm really, you know, I'm really pleased that we got this time, and your your life and your career has continued to evolve and and progress. And so that's very much where we want to focus the attention today. However, if any of our listeners didn't catch your first episode, which was back, I think, three years ago or so, give our listener a bit of the backstory. Alok, you know, tell us about your background, uh, some of the kind of milestones that you've had along the way to, to where you are today at Vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's an honor to be here uh, back on the podcast. You know, my name is Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and founder of Vibe Bio. 
My background is actually as a scientist. I spent about 15 years at the bench doing research, did an undergrad, a PhD, and a postdoc. My collaborator during my PhD ended up winning the Nobel Prize in 2016. And I spent time at Harvard working for the founder of Genzyme, a guy named George Whitesides. He's a pretty well-known chemist. During that time, many of my colleagues and friends ended up going into academia and becoming professors. I, however, ended up uh, going into software uh, and actually started several software companies uh, focused on the biotech industry. Those companies, which spanned from R&D, data management, through to open innovation, have raised about $100 million in venture capital, a few hundred employees, doing pretty well. I also spent some time at a software company called Ignite, uh, which does uh, data governance and, and file collaboration software and help build up their life sciences division now into a mid-eight figure year business. And then, you know, as life does, got thrown at the curveball in 2021. My wife and I at the time were fortunate enough to have our, our first kid. Though the pregnancy went okay, uh, unfortunately, our daughter was born very sick and spent a long time in the hospital. One of the hardest parts about that experience was that uh, the diseases that she had were somewhat common, the biology well understood, but unfortunately, she had no dedicated medicines. Um, and as a consequence, been a long time suffering. You know, one of the hardest parts about that experience, uh, I think, was the fact that when you're a parent, especially, you had very little agency in that scenario and didn't have uh, much opportunity to actually go and identify uh, potential treatments. And so, as a founder, it catalyzed in me a an obsession, if you will, uh, to try and identify the core infrastructure and circumstances that precluded high potential medicines from getting to patients, especially in these scenarios when diseases like rare diseases are debilitating, deadly, but have a path in terms of uh, a candidate medicine. So that's what motivated me to start Vibe. Vibe's still fairly young. We're about 10, 11 months old. Raised a round of capital last year, uh, about $12.5 million, and are now pursuing this mission of trying to enable every cure for every community. I guess the last bit I'd say is also along the way, I started and run a podcast called Biotech 2050, which helps chronicle the innovations in the biotech sector. You know, We're grateful to have you, Ramon, as an early guest uh, back in 2019 uh, on the podcast, but that's a little bit more of a passion project and what uh, I do for fun. So that's a little bit about me, long-winded. Not long-winded, and I, you know, it goes without saying, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate the kind of openness and, and vulnerability of your story to bring some of the personal aspects to your life, but also how they have inspired, you know, some of the pathways that you've decided to to take. Because you do have a, a fantastic kind of background, um, but obviously life has life has taken you down a, a slightly different path. I am going to come back and talk about Vibe and, and talk about Biotech 2050. Before I do, you, you mentioned obviously raising capital, and and you've 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 had a great track record of raising capital over the years, and you know as a consequence of that, you've built successful businesses and hired fantastic teams. How is your, I suppose, relationship or view on raising capital kind of evolved over the years in terms of you know if if I if we look at the outlook that went to raise capital you know, 18 months ago for Vibe, how was that outlook different to the one that did it, you know, a decade ago or so? Like, talk us through some of the the lessons that you've learned uh, along the way. It's a really great question. I think you're, you're asking at a really opportune time in part because we've seen over the past year, 
that the market has really shifted, right? Both in terms of private markets and public markets. So I think if you ask Alok of 18 months from now, even, you know, uh, he'll probably give you an even different answer. The biggest change I've seen over the past two to three years, or let's call it, uh, let's say 10 years in terms of fundraising. One, I think there's been way more capital that's come into the space, which is a good thing. But I also think that as more capital has come in, there's a much broader pool of investors who are participating. I think that's also a, a good thing. But you also identify that those folks who are investing today are less likely to have been founders themselves. So they tend to optimize for and examine opportunities in a very different way than I think someone who was a former founder who became a VC would. So that's definitely been one change. That's, I think, say both for the positive and the negative. I think also, especially through COVID, which has been a big sea change in the mindset and the psyche of the everyday American, has been the realization of how important medicine and biotechnology is to our livelihoods and the world. And so you're seeing a substantial amount of interest and exposure to biotech, the tools needed for biotech to be successful, and its relevant importance, especially from an impact standpoint amongst investors as well. So when I went to go raise you know, capital, say in 2014, 2015, 2017, there still wasn't that much awareness for life sciences outside of the biotech community or the tools needed for them to be successful. Today, you see multiple software companies or multiple financial companies focused in this space now getting funded and growing. So I think that's been a really positive thing that's changed. But unfortunately, the economic scenario today has, I think, made it more difficult to fund these higher risk, long-term bets like new medicines. So hence my comment around, uh, ask me again in uh, you know three years. It is interesting. And, and even like you taught me through you know, whenever I think of fundraising, I think of you know, uh, you know, having lived in, lived in Boston and spent time in Kendall in Kendall Square in Cambridge. You know, you'd see these kind of VC types sat in in the kind of glass offices, and one after another, uh, you know, a founder would bring their slide deck in and try and sell them a dream. Is it is it still the same as that now as it was you know years ago that you've got to kind of pound the pave, pavements to go and see and you know maybe get a bit lucky and see the right investor on the right day or has the approach evolved in some way over the last kind of 10 years or so? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that uh, no matter who you are, whether you're a first-time founder or a serial entrepreneur, it's still always um, a grind to go and raise money. And I think it's a grind primarily because for a new idea that you're pursuing you have to find what I call the MVI or the minimum viable investor. And what that means is that for every company or every project, there is the right profile of investor out there to uh, support your specific company. And the real challenge is one, identifying what the profile that investor is so you can more easily find them. But then second, continuing to refine your pitch and presentation to handle a lot of the concerns and help build credibility around both yourself and the vision that you're trying to build towards. Uh, you know, I think one of the great examples I, I've recall from a, of the MVI, for example, was a good friend was building a um, detection tool for um, and a, a, a basically a wearable 
to help women in really tough scenarios be able to call for help. So whether they're at a bar or they're in a uh, really tough interpersonal situation, they can sort of hit a button on their on this wearable and it would sort of alert a friend to either make a phone call or call for help, etc. And it was interesting because when they were first starting to raise cup capital, they would try and pitch women who are investors um, and had a lot of difficulty trying to raise the round as a consequence. And I remember sitting with them, sort of looking at the different types of investors that are out there. And what we actually realized is that their MVI was not uh, female investors, but actually were male investors who had daughters who were entering their teenage years. Because the biggest fear that any parent would have, um, and especially fathers, is knowing how bad you know members of the opposite sex can be and wanting to protect your own kith and kin right, from uh, those sorts of elements. And so after sort of helping them sort of both reposition and then target a different group of investors, they were actually able to raise you know, seven figures pretty quickly thereafter. And I think it's just a great example of whether you're building a biotech company, a CDMO, a diagnostics company, a software company, being really focused on the right MVI is most critical and um, being able to refine your pitch to help uh, them see the vision that you're trying to build towards is table stakes and is always the hard work to be done no matter how experienced you are. Well, Alok, listener, has just given you a, a quick lesson in great marketing, in fact, <laughs> which it's really interesting, the, the, the way that you talk about uh, MVI, which I think is a, is a fantastic uh, term and concept that I've not come across, but it is it is very aligned to understanding your target audience, building a persona, making sure the content is relevant and playing towards those kind of pains and problems and fears is, is, is almost textbook kind of marketing which again i think is fantastic knowledge for our listener to take thanks for sharing that as well and let's talk about vibe then i mean you've given us you know some of the the backstory and, and inspiration into building this uh, community and funding something that will ultimately help fund treatments for rare disease in the future so talk us through how it kind of all works and you know the money that you've raised like what does the infrastructure look like and what do you focus on and you know, bear in mind our listener will be from different parts of the kind of life science ecosystem so you can go as kind of simple and complicated as you want but paint that picture of, of what vibe does yeah absolutely well maybe taking a step back and sort of highlighting kind of some of the challenges that are existing in the biotech landscape might be a good place to start I think when you look at the broader biotech domain, one one thing that gives us such hope is the fact that we now have way better understanding of many of the diseases that are out there, from cancer to IBD, autism to rare diseases. We now have tools available to us to help us really pinpoint some of the origins of those diseases. And as a consequence, we also have better tools by which we can go and uh, remediate them. The past decade to two decades has led to a panoply of modalities, mRNA, microbial therapeutics, uh, monoclonal antibodies, cell therapies, gene therapies, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen uh, such a proliferation of those tools in our toolkit to go treat disease. But oftentimes what ends up happening is that when you look at a lot of the biotechs that are formed, oftentimes they'll have a really exciting platform technology and have identified multiple different drugs that they can design from that platform to go treat those diseases. But oftentimes as an organization, they lack the res financial resources to be able to go pursue all of them in parallel because it's a very expensive endeavor. And so the organization, just like any good T 
team would have to be uh, prudent around where they allocate capital and focus in on usually the top one lead program that they want to pursue. And it makes sense, you know, with limited resources, you have to make tough calls. But what ends up happening, especially in a biotech world, is that you might have multiple high potential medicines. Those end up sitting on a shelf in favor of the top lead program. And it's not that all the other programs are the drugs are bad or the science is bad, but you just have to choose one ultimately. And oftentimes, especially in the modern world, the one that's selected often ends up be, being either the easiest to raise future dollars on or the largest indication possible because it increases the enterprise value of the organization. And so the unfortunate circumstance of those incentives result in a lot of high potential medicines, especially for rare and overlooked diseases, being deprioritized in favor of sort of oftentimes a larger indication. And so that's really the circumstance where Vibe has, has come to, which is to say, as these medicines are developed, as they approach an inflection point, capital ends up becoming really scarce, not only because costs go up, but because many investors would much rather see the pivotal data before they put money in. So what Vibe is doing is we're building a platform, essentially a fintech platform for biotech that allows a large pool of investors to be able to invest in these high potential biotechs through a variety of different financial mechanisms. And we're using software, specifically a technology stack, to help more scalably and repeatedly evaluate those candidate medicines and companies to then empower that large group of investors to put money in, in a knowledgeable and confident way. So that's sort of the approach that we've been trying to take, much in the same way AngelList, for instance, has done this in the technology world. You know, we seek to disrupt the biotech finance world using software as well. Oh, it's funny because as you were finishing there, I think the last point you, you mentioned the example, you know, is there an inspiration from another sector where this has worked really, really well? And the AngelList platform that you mentioned there, is that kind of ultimately what you're looking to achieve, which is, I suppose, a a very different way of investing and kind of focusing on high potential, like I suppose different portfolios and different products versus the kind of traditional way. Is that very much the the aim of the business? Yeah, I, I think what we see is a circumstance where there's a lot of high potential medicines and high potential technologies that are out there, especially given the current capital markets. There isn't a lot of traditional biotech venture that's available to those biotech companies. But we see, especially because of COVID and, and sort of the growth in the broader economy, a large number of individuals, whether it be family offices, hedge funds, high net worth individuals, interested in investing in these projects. And ultimately, I think innovation is uh, most um, vibrant when you have a large distributed network of investors with different risk tolerances interested in supporting these high potential medicines and technologies. But the fundamental gap, I think, in connecting those two, investors and biotechs, is ultimately a component of both deal flow awareness and domain understanding. You know, I'm sure for any one of the, the projects that your customers or listeners pursues, there's half a dozen to a dozen experts across regulatory, clinical development, manufacturing, uh, marketing, etc., that need to, be come, need to come to the table to help support a given drug program. And I think allocating capital is much, much similar in that regard. So our hope is that through a combo of both expertise from our community, plus 
technology, we can start to expedite and scale that know-how um, to support more biotechs through this decentralized network. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. In that last point there, I like the supporting biotechs is, it almost reminds me of almost a bit of a matchmaking service that if you get, say, for example, a family office or a high net worth individual that has a, a specific reason why they want to fund and help a specific rare disease area that could be a real matchmaking between the two where the capital is brought to the table and it enables that biotech to progress their high potential medicine as opposed to them going to try and you know as we mentioned before you know pound the streets and try and find funding from generalist capital providers is that one way of thinking about how this model kind of works and how this ecosystem starts to build I think you're you're absolutely right, and you know one thing I should highlight is that you know the inspiration for our approach was actually really coming from how patients themselves have actually tried to pursue treatments for the diseases they care about. You know, over the past half century, some of the most canonical medicines that we think about, whether it's treatments for cystic fibrosis, vaccine, the vaccine for polio, pulmonary arterial hypertension, amongst other diseases, were actually treated and medicines funded not by the FDA or traditional venture capitalists, but rather patients themselves forming communities, often as a charity, raising money from a decentralized network of sort of philanthropists, right, as charity, and then investing in these high potential medicines that they saw uniquely as valuable to their community. And the interesting thing is in those examples amongst others, those medicines have become not only transformative medically, but also financially, where a large portion of the seven to $8 billion a year that Vertex um, Pharmaceuticals earns on a yearly basis, an $80 billion market company, comes from uh, medicines that were invested in early on by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. You know, Martine Rothblatt, who started United Therapeutics, has a $10 billion market cap and does about a billion dollars top line across several rare disease drugs. And the vaccine for polio, I think even till this day, does a few billion dollars a year in top line revenue. So these are great examples where I think, again, in a circumstance when legacy, in, legacy institutions are focused in one place, but patients and communities see an opportunity elsewhere and have a high need and passion, there's an opportunity by which I think we can create infrastructure and tools to enable them to access the capital and the expertise needed to be able to invest and pursue um, these medicines scalably. So that's, I think, a big part of the inspiration, I think sort of highlights, um, to your point, how we can start to scale the development of treatments for these diseases in a more systematic manner. And I think the last point I'll just highlight is that to at least be able to move the needle on some of these diseases, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars is kind of the regime of, of investment that's needed to be able to do that. So oftentimes being able to prove out that one of these medicines as they approach an inflection point is worthwhile to pursue really is a modicum of cost, but then can unlock much larger amount of capital on the back end once they hit that inflection point. It's a really wonderful kind of concept in, in business model. And I'm kind of sitting here seeing the benefits, the long-term benefits of effectively bringing these different communities together that are ultimately all connected with the same aim which is to produce you know a, a solution or a medicine to help a specific rare disease area 
this might be a really simple question, but how do you think about, like, I suppose, which of these are your customers in the truest sense, or is your job as Vibe effectively to be that platform to bring these patients, forming communities, and the investors and the biotechs together? Is that your job almost to create a platform that brings all of these different parties to the table to help them almost interact in an online community? This is the way I'd almost kind of think about it in my mind. It's a really good question. I think the place to start is really bringing both investors and biotechs under the same roof, Mm -hmm. such that those biotechs with truly vetted and high quality science can access the capital they need to be able to get to the next inflection point. What we've learned over the past year is that many patient charities, as they start to invest and and, uh, fund, whether it's academic science or um, candidate medicines themselves, uh, are able to start their own biotechs that are led by patient families and by their community. And I think that has alleviated the burden on us from having to instantiate a biotech, for instance, but rather they become sort of one of those biotech constituents that we can serve alongside sort of the investors um, who want to support those sorts of projects on the flip side. So I think really starting with software and financial products and tools that allow those two communities to interact, I think is sort of the the first key place that we that we intend to start. And given the challenges in the biotech market from a capital perspective, have you seen, I suppose, an increased demand from the biotech community, albeit in the in the first year? That you guys have been in existence. Have you have you seen an increased amount of interest in your platform on the basis of biotechs almost struggling to get their funding from the traditional kind of sources? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think one of the big things that we've seen as a challenge has been, again, as these medicines start to be developed, biotech companies can raise maybe a couple hundred grand and maybe a few million dollars to get the ball rolling and identify a few high potential medicines coming from their platform or from their prior work. But oftentimes as they start to approach an inflection point, whether it's in vivo proof of concept, an IND or human proof of concept, as those costs start to scale exponentially, founders and leadership teams tend to be stuck between a rock and a hard place where they need to be able to have the data from those milestones to raise money, but oftentimes need money in order to uh, hit those Yes. Yes. And so that's where I think Vibe has come in to say, you know, is there an opportunity where we can bring the modicum of capital, again, a few hundred grand, a few million bucks to help support those companies hit those inflection points and do so in a model that is non-dilutive, it's not a loan, but enables them to have access to the capital they need today to then be able to unlock that further round of capital in the not too distant future. So that's why one of the financial products we're uh, bringing to market is what we call inflection point financing, which provides those biotech companies with that capital at that point when many other funds would prefer to wait. We actually see an opportunity to actually take that risk and and support that company at that point to help them uh, prove that their medicine has uh, high potential. So very much see both the market in terms of the lack of access to capital along with the catch-22 that many uh, companies are in as being one of the key gates. And how do you guys make money through this process? So, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners are sitting there thinking, hey, Alok seems like a really nice guy. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he's raised money and created this fantastic platform that's going to bring 
these things together. And but as far as I'm aware, it's not a, a not for profit. But I might be wrong. Presumably, you you guys make your cut, if you like, on bringing these deals together and making it happen. Or is it a, is it a not for profit type setup? Yeah, no, very much a for profit organization. But I think what we've seen are repeatable, scalable business models that support both biotech companies or com- startups and investors with companies like AngelList or other analogies and other verticals like LendingTree amongst others. And so the way we make money is ultimately we hope that our technology and our expertise can help identify these uh, high potential biotechs and evaluate these medicines as investors invest in them through our financial products, we'll earn some fees on the back end that allow us to not only scale up our work, but also continue to support the recruitment of additional investors and biotechs to the forefront. So very much we see it as an aligned incentive where we want to ensure that biotech, good biotechs come to the table and get access to capital, but also that investors are investing in, in the highest potential projects such that they're able to earn returns and we're able to participate part of that through a variety of mechanisms. Makes sense. And I love, I'm a big fan of disruption and innovation and new models and it excites me what what you're doing. I remember when we caught up maybe a year or so ago when you were telling me about this business, I was like, that is a great idea. So I'm, I'm very excited to see it continue to grow and expand. And I wanted to Come back to your podcast, you know, Biotech 2050. And for any of our listeners, that I was very fortunate. I think I was episode seven or so very early on in, in Biotech 2050s kind of getting off the ground. But Alec was kind enough to give me a lot of advice and actually a lot of huge amount of inspiration, which ultimately led to the start of Molecule to Market. So if you are a fan of our podcast, then you probably need to send Alok a message to say thank you to him as much as me and my team. You're at over 150 episodes now, Alok. You have built a fantastic following and podcast. And what I love about what you've done, similar to what we try to do at Molecule to Market, is stick at it. And it's not always easy to stick at it. And it's one of the reasons why most podcasts actually fail is because the people that start them just get bored of them or you know, something else, some other shiny tool happens, but you guys have really built a, a fantastic platform there. So so my question about the podcast is kind of as you reflect back on all those episodes, give us an insight of a few learnings that you've had from from the guests that you've had on the on the podcast too are there a couple of things that have really stuck with you and that informed you in a way that's you know changed your thinking just from from absorbing that information from your guests yeah well you know it's we're obviously grateful to you for being a, an early uh, guest on the podcast when we were just starting out in 2019 and yeah glad to have helped support you and in, in getting this awesome podcast off the ground as well yeah, you know, I think the learnings have been kind of interesting. I'll be candid, you know, when my co-founder Rahul and I and co-host uh, decided to start Biotech 2015-2019, we never really sought out to, you know, build a business around it or monetize it. Till this day, it's actually a labor of love and a passion project for both of us. And I think it ultimately came from a yearning to have more conversations around innovation beyond the traditional forums of a JP Morgan or a bio, et cetera. 
So I think our core has uh, learnings has been that one, the market has really, I think, appreciated and enjoyed these conversations. Um, through COVID, especially, we were really fortunate to sort of become, you know, a top five kind of biotech podcast in this space and have a lot of really great guests from publicly traded companies like Royvan to, you know, uh, early stage innovators, you know, at their series A stage biotechs. So we've been really fortunate to have a, a broad swath of participants. I think the additional learnings beyond the need of having more of these conversations, the venue, what we've also, I think, seen has been that one, innovation is incredibly vibrant in today's environment, and we're seeing a much more diverse set of players come to the table. So we've seen folks who've come from pure financial backgrounds, MDs, PhDs, even to be candid, you know, kids out of school looking to translate their technologies to have you know positive human impact. So I think innovation very much is, is coming from everywhere. I think the second part of it is that there are uh, commonalities as part of that journey. Um, we've seen you know a measurable number of folks who have had personal experiences with health, just like uh, you know my own when it comes to my child, whether it's a family member, a loved one, a child, uh, even themselves, you know, having um, an illness that had no dedicated treatment and felt motivated to go and try and find a solution for it. Um, so, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot of really great kind of pure intent when it comes to starting these sorts of projects. The last learning I just share is that, you know, we haven't interviewed too many venture capitalists per se, but mostly, you know, CEOs and founders and, and, and leaders inside biopharma companies. And I'd say the last is that there's a tremendous amount of optimism for the future. The number of modalities are greater understanding of disease, the way in which technology is starting to have a positive impact on drug development. I think there's just a lot of um, good things on the horizon uh, and hope to see yeah, more of those come to fruition. So those would be the, the three learnings that uh, we've had through Biotech 2050 so far. I really love that. And there's some real positivity and optimism in that for around technology innovation and general optimism for you know, the market as we, as we look ahead and, and that's kind of a lovely segue into, I suppose, the last five minutes in talking about the, the future of the sector. But before we do that, I wanted to remind, and you might not remember this, I hope you do, but a prediction that you, you made when you came on in, in episode tw 34, uh, where you, you felt that uh, CDMOs and CROs in particular needed to become more strategic in their ways of dealing with biotech clients and see themselves as real data and know-how specialists and you know that was back in in 2019 or sorry in, in 2020 i believe so i think you were absolutely accurate in that forecast in that requirement and we certainly from my perspective i think that data we know has become incredibly important in that time how do you how do you if you reflect back on that I don't want to call it a prediction, but it was almost a, you, you urged and suggested that CDMOs and CROs really utilize the data and know-how piece of their businesses and, and made more of that. Have you seen that to be the case in, in, in the last couple of years? Absolutely. You know, I think uh, didn't realize that it was going to come to fruition as quickly, but I think COVID certainly served as an accelerator especially when folks couldn't sort of show up in person, right, to to interact with their CDMOs or set up their own facilities. So I think the medium by which 
CDMOs transacted and uh, was more than just dollars and um, material, but also in data ultimately. So uh, I think we're seeing a lot more excitement and interest um, in that space, as well as trying to figure out how we start to leverage that technology um, or leverage that data set with technology to deliver more value to uh, manuf uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and others. So very much I've seen that as a trend and good to hear that uh, you you share the same opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose in looking at what you do in, in Vibe and the ecosystem that you bring together, what's your, what's your thoughts on, I suppose, partnerships, you know, and how CDMOs and CROs can, I suppose, utilize this concept of partnerships with biotech companies, given a slightly more challenging capital situation. Do you think there's scope for a slightly different way to kind of share risk, for example, in helping kind of, you know, to go back to your previous point, you know, get to these inflection points, get the data, reach milestones, get that kind of next round of investments. How do you think about the, the kind of partnerships piece? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think one, the long-term arc of this industry will be more medicines, more modalities, um, more biotech startups. But I think that also opens up both uh, a unique opportunity for the most forward-looking CDMOs who want to start to think beyond just being a transactional manufacturer and want to be a true partner, both um, from a scientific standpoint, which I think many are, but also from a financial one. And so if I could make any sort of prognostication over the next uh, next three to four years, as I did last time, I'd say it would be around the nature of partnership and uh, financial uh, interplay between the customer and the CDMO beyond just sort of paying for services, uh, milestones, royalties, upside, I think become one of the pieces of structures that could start to come to the forefront. Further thinking about, you know, whether it's being an equity investor alongside some of these projects or having upside uh, when doing work at risk, I think becomes another sort of uh, angle by which we can start to think about this. And that's where something I think Vibe has been really curious to see is you know, if we can start to provide some of the capital at the table that's also at risk alongside some of the skills and the capabilities that, a, say, a CDMO or a CRO can also offer, what does that mean for the industry longer term where, in addition to it being a transaction, what if it actually is a true partnership where there is deep integration and aligned financial incentives across all of the parties at the table as well? So that very much is, I think, uh, one of the big areas for opportunity but it requires a long-term view as well as um, uh, a willingness to collaborate and be innovative, I think, from the CDMO perspective. I think that's a really great insight, actually, into how the market is moving. And it's been fascinating because that echoes some of the opinions we've had from biotech CEOs on the podcast in the last few months. The way that you talk about the kind of alternative models away from just fee-for-service. Are you seeing any of this happen already or are you expecting this to happen kind of in the future? Just be keen to understand whether you're seeing kind of examples of this actually in play. You know, you see some of it already in play in areas like gene therapy and cell therapy where a lot more of the focus and challenges are on CMC and manufacturing as an example. Um, but I think the philosophy and the benefits could really translate to any modality at any stage of company. 
Um, and I think this is an opportune time to do it in part because CDMOs probably have more demand than they've ever had before. Um, the capacity, new capacity isn't coming online nearly as fast, so they're in a pretty decent position for the next few years. Um, but I think there are a lot of really innovative technologies that if they're able to reach that inflection point, could also be big customers for them longer term. So I think, again, it's probably not going to be a play for every CDMO out there, but for those who aspire to be bigger than they are, as well as um, have greater skin in the game, I think there there is today an opportunity by which you know we can support um, biotechs and CDMOs to work more collaborate to, collaboratively together, both from a scientific standpoint, but also from a financial one uh, that enables biotechs to access the resources they need at perhaps lower cash out the door, but then give by uh, CDMOs some upside longer term uh, as they look to share risk um, with that biotech company. So very much, I think something that's happening today in certain areas and just need some technology and um, standardization to start to scale elsewhere. You heard it here first, listener. Alok is uh, a predictor of the future, so take his words uh, very seriously. Last question for you, Alok, because you know, at time of recording, uh, not to spoil the illusion for any of our listeners, uh, you know, you and I are going to catch up at Bio in Boston next week, and hopefully, it's going to be a great and exciting show. And one of the topics I'm expecting to be very much in the conversation is AI, and you know. The, the world has very much changed in the last few months as AI tools have kind of got into the hands of pretty much anyone with a smartphone in the world, which is more or less anyone. So how do you, how are you, you know, you're someone who I see as a, a technologist, an innovator, a, a futurist, and very much a visionary. So love you to end today's show, giving us some insights on how you see, see AI disrupting or impacting the pharma services space in the next uh, year or two? Yeah. Well, I would say AI's got a, a lot of potential. It's it's going to be most disruptive uh, and most beneficial to those institutions that harbor the most amount of data, going back to my prior prognostication. And so I think CDMOs and CROs and consulting groups are in a really strong position where you're going to see technologies like LLMs enable us to be able to create documents, templates, um, filing submissions, right? Pretty quickly, whether it be an IND or an NDA, quality documentation, batch reports, et cetera, from raw data, that I think is going to be one. And that's going to drive both efficiency, but then also potentially could disrupt some business models as well as the cost to generate such data and documents goes down. But I think the other part um, that we're also going to start to see new AI technologies be applied is the opportunity to start to ask questions around how we should operate our business. So I know of actually several CDMOs that are taking, for instance, some of their proposals that they've made for various projects, look at the profitability and the economics of those projects they've pursued, and then use various AI tools to help them optimize for how they should be applying for or fulfilling RFPs in the future. And so can AI now help us optimize not only things like synthetic routes and planning, but then also cost optimization as well in terms of revenue and top line. I think that's where you're going to start to see, again, some of these shared risk models and other types of um, tools start to come to the forefront. So yeah, optimization around the business as well as uh, changing the way we actually operate and, and deliver some of the services, I think are going to be two of the highest value uses of AI. Fascinating stuff. And 
I, again, I'm I'm going to guess that most of our listeners are jotting this down and taking them back into their business. <laughs> so, hey, we need to move pretty quick on on uh, you know utilizing uh, the LLM models and software that are out there. Uh, and I agree. And uh, you know, it's interesting because my own view on AI is is not too dissimilar. Other than I think. I think the the confidentiality and security and sensitivity of data is a huge concern for me in terms of how we utilize these technologies without divulging too much information or anything that is overly sensitive into these, which is not a good look for anyone involved. Um, Alok, I love speaking to you. It's been a pleasure catching up with you. I'm so pleased we got you back on the podcast and it's genuinely great to hear the story of Vibio and you know the, the manner in which it came about and it sounds like this is going to be the purpose and hopefully what defines you in the next few years because you know all going well Vibe will help bring uh, some of these uh, you know really kind of high potential medicines as, as you call them and tools and technologies to market that will ultimately have a benefit for patients with rare diseases all over the world which is an incredibly worthwhile reason for being in business so uh, congratulations and it goes without saying but we wish you all all the best in your endeavors and uh and yeah we'll we'll see you again in a few years time on molecule to market thank you so much for the opportunity and very much looking forward to collaborating with the audience and you and being uh back on the show in a few years to catch up again all right guys i told you he was going to be a good guest and he of course uh, delivered and you know, I think one of the things that is hard to miss in Alok's story is his personal story that ultimately motivated, inspired him to create uh, his rare disease platform. And I love the fact um, that it's focused on that ecosystem and that phrase he uses a time and time again is high potential medicines, which is not one that I generally use, but I think it's a terrific way of thinking about ones that can really impact patients. Um, I really liked how he talked about the minimal viable investor, MVI. Again, I've never heard that before. I've come across the uh, MVP or minimal viable product, which is kind of very common in the SaaS world. But, you know, nevertheless, I like how he explains the grind of capital raising and that, <laughs> that never disappears. It doesn't matter how successful you are. I'll brought to life something that we've heard again and again is the theme is that kind of macro impact of COVID-19 in terms of just highlighting the importance of our industry and the importance of, of biotechnology and medicines generally. And I love his phrase at the end where he talks about optimism and innovation and technology in the biopharma world. I think that's real words of wisdom kind of looking forward into the future. Um, again, Interesting for anyone that works with biotech companies or for biotech companies, just an insight into that kind of catch-22 of getting to those inflection points in your journey, but never, ne nevertheless needing capital to do so. It's quite a tricky situation. And I certainly sympathize with those biotech companies out here, and we've had guests on talking about that more and more. And finally, you know, uh, you know, it was brilliant to get his predictions on AI and how CDMOs and CROs need to evolve away from just fee-for-service models and explore the kind of longer-term partnership-led alternatives. Again, we're hearing this more and more in some of the interviews that we're having on the podcast. Apologies if there is any background noise. My uh, two-year-old has decided this is the point in the morning that he wants to play his brother's piano from the other room. So apologies for that. 
Thanks as always to you for listening and for my team for pulling this together. If you haven't already, please go into the App Store and give us a nice five-star rating. Share us on social media or with one of your colleagues. Thanks for being with us here today. Have a great day. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecules Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.